a well done to you brave souls. You know, getting through all of that crazy, crazy snow, not. We woke up to a half inch of slush in Gales Ferry and that was not a lot of fun for anybody. Um, bummer, bummer. Well, we'll pray for a better snow next time. Um, it's been a foggy week for me, to be honest with you all. Um, there's a lot of sickness in my house between Christmas and New Year's and this past week. There's just kind of the fog of trying to recover out of that. And so for me, both just in life, personally, mentally, and as I've worked through the text of, of Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're in the book of Acts. Um, you know, a singular truth has just kind of uh, 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 shined forth in my own in, in, in my own study and time, and we're going to get there later in the sermon. But I'm, I'm just going to be upfront about it now. And that that point is this: that that God is passionate about the purity of His people. God is passionate about the purity of His people. His their holiness, our holiness. Another way of thinking about that is, is us looking and living and loving like Jesus. And that point at which you look most like Jesus is an intersection point between your greatest good and God's greatest glory. And God is passionate about the good of his people and passionate about the glory of his name. And he's passionate about the purity of his people, their holiness, them conforming to the image of Jesus. That's where we're going today. As we look at a story of two people doing a stupid thing and suffering the consequences for it in Acts chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Acts is, it comes after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's written by Luke and it chronicles the beginning of the most diverse and dynamic movement in human history. That is the church. And so that's where we're parking today. Before I, I read the text, I'm going to pray. Lord, we ask God for soft hearts, ready minds, open ears. God, we pray that, that truth would convict, that Lord, that you would lift burdens today. Lord, that people would feel your warmth, your love, your grace. God, we pray that whatever is unhelpful or not from you would fade. But Lord, clarity, Lord, as you can pierce through the fogginess, if there's others in this room who perhaps come in with a kind of fogginess looming over them, Lord, that your word would pierce through that fogginess and bring clarity to their hearts and their minds and their lives. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to read through these 11 verses. And I'm gonna give some just notes along the way. After we read through the entirety of the text together, then I'm gonna have two points to anchor us to as we think about the account of Ananias and Sapphira. So Acts chapter five, verse one, that's where we begin and it starts. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Now, we're going to pause a bunch as we read through this. Sapphira, almost exclusively in the first century, according to records, was a name used in wealthy families. And so from what, it's going to make sense out of what we're about to read, but she likely coming from a wealthy family, married probably likely into a wealthy family, the church having, being extended to and including people who have means. It says, he sold a piece of property. 
However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the property that was sold was likely at a distance from Jerusalem because these sales were very public. And so if there was any inclination that he could take this property, which they had already pledged to the church, the proceeds, but then not give the full proceeds actually to the church like they had said they would, chances are the property would, would have been sold from uh, an area further away. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Now that phrase, filled your heart, the word used there is the same language that's been used up until this point to refer to what the Holy Spirit has been doing in the hearts and lives of believers. Those who have given their lives to Jesus have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet Peter is pointing out that Ananias had allowed Satan to get a foothold into the door and is calling out that why in the world has Satan filled your heart instead? Now he's not talking about Satan being like a little puppet master and not like the horror movies that pop up. Not talking about that kind of total demonic control possession. But again, there's a comparison happening with the language that Luke is using here to those who are operating under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit. And so Ananias, he's, his heart has been filled instead by Satan. Wasn't it yours, verse four, while you possessed it? Peter asking him about the land. And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and a fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Now this, this has all the makings of a really great like true crime show that you'd watch online because what I know because I've gotten into them lately on YouTube and I come from a law enforcement background with all my family and stuff and, and I just, you, you see people coming in, they bring them in and they interview them separately and they, they don't have their story straight and you're just saying to yourself, why are you talking? Be quiet, get a lawyer, but they don't. Wouldn't have helped them either, okay? I digress. But this is what happens. Three hours later, she comes in. She doesn't know what happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out instantly. She dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A quick historical note here. Those responsible for burying their dead were the family. Presumably these two people coming from wealthy families. That would have been their responsibility. And yet Jesus, in his ministry, at one point, he's ministering to people and someone says, hey, your mom and your brother are outside. And he's like, well, who are my mother and my brother? I'm with my mother and my brother. Jesus begins to kind of redefine family 
for the church. And what we, we see happens is that Jesus wants the church to think of themselves and their relationships and their family defined first in light of the blood that he sheds on the cross and second in light of the blood we share going through our veins. That's a major change, but it's actually lived out here in the early church because this responsibility that should have been taken by the family is picked up by the church family. They don't wait on their actual blood family. They go and they bury them as they're supposed to. Verse 11, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. You best believe people were precise after this happened, right? When they were given. Now on its face, there's kind of a ridiculousness to this. Why would you do this, Ananias and Sapphira? Why? What's the point? What did you have to say? Really, really, was it worth it? You look at this. What in the world? And then you think about God's response. And you might ask the same question. Like, God, why would you do this at the beginning of all this? Now that word in verse two of Acts chapter five, when it says that Ananias kept back part of the proceeds, that Greek word for kept back only happens in one other book in the New Testament and in the entire Greek Old Testament only happens one time, once. And it refers to when the people of God had just for the, begun entering into the promised land. They had wandered through the wilderness all that time. They get into the promised land and God has all these things he's going to give them and he wants to bless them. And so they begin taking the land, but one knucklehead named Achan decides to take some of the stuff that was supposed to be set aside for God and he tries to sneak it and hold on to it for himself. It's the same word. Some scholars say you could use the word embezzled. And what ends up happening to Achan? Well, the people of Israel deal with some consequences as they go to battle. He ends up getting found out and then the community stones him to death. At the very beginning of God's people taking an identity in this land that he had given them, he was, God, was very peculiar about not letting things infect or infest this people that he wanted to set apart from the rest of the world. And here we have in the New Testament, the same, very, very same thing happening. As the Holy Spirit is indwelling this group of people that God has set apart with a mission and a purpose that is beautiful and to his glory. That here we have this couple who's welcoming, interweaving a kind of selfishness and deceit into the life of this new organism called the church. And God ain't having it. But as we come across stories like these, you may be respond similarly to me, at least at first glance, and think, doesn't that just seem kind of harsh? Well, our first point, thing I wanna run through with you all is, is that sin just never seems as bad as it actually is. Sin for most of us, that thing that you struggle with privately that you don't really share with a lot of people, chances are we don't really think of sin being as bad as it actually is. And when we come across a story like this and we think to ourselves, ah, oh, God, is that a little harsh? 
What we need to do is step back and think, what in the world is so offensive to God and why isn't it offensive to me? Because in a world that gets so easily offended by so many things, we are so unoffended by sin. And yet there is something about what Ananias and Sapphira do that God finds to be deeply offensive. So let's think about what happened. Again, land is pledged voluntarily. They didn't have to pledge it. Okay? They could have brought the proceeds that they said they were going to bring. That's totally fine. But they had pledged the land. They'd already gotten the status and the honor and the reputation to go along with it. The sale had happened in some time between when they had pledged whatever they were going to give and the actual giving of it, a decision was made. Oh, you know what? We're just, we're just, we're just going to keep we're just going to keep some of this back for ourselves. Two particular sins that I want to talk about this couple that I know have grips in many of our lives. The first is the love of money. Money gives us a sense of power. Money and wealth gives us a a sense of influence. For me personally, a sense of security or stability. Money lets you have your way. And the more money you have, the more confidently you can be assured that you get what you want when you want it. So what's so great about it? Money lets me have my way. What does God say about money in Matthew 6? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what's interesting is more and more wealthy people were coming into the church. So much so that in 1 Timothy, we actually get instructions. We give instructions for what teachers and preachers, pastors and elders, what they're supposed to instruct wealthy people. It says this, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Now listen up, this is me as a middle class person in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. This is me. This is the battle that I fight. This is the battle that my kids fight. And it's so real and it's so conniving. And it's just so easy to love money. It's just so easy. We shake our heads at Ananias. It's just so easy to love, especially for kids, because they may not have money, but they might have stuff. I've been very sensitive about that, kind of in my own household as we've thought about discipleship. And so I actually have, have an illustration that I worked, uh, that I shared with my kids. Can you guys bring up that stuff, please? Thank you. On Christmas Day, just feeling very sensitive to the materialism of Christmas. And I'm sure a lot of other people felt that there is a spiritual side to how do we navigate thinking about gifts and stuff and our relationship to stuff and seeing things as they belong to God 
as opposed to seeing things as Ananias did, which is, no, this is mine, even if others think I'm being more generous than I am. And so on Christmas Day, I got this language from a podcast that Amber Cameron actually sent me um, several weeks ago, but kind of crafted into an illustration for my kids. And I told my kids, this is what the world wants you to be. This is a pail, okay? We're, we're gonna call it a pail. And this is God's blessing. And the world really wants God's blessing to flow into your life, his provision, his stuff, his money, and for it to stop with you. In fact, what the world wants, what the enemy wants, is sometimes, you, I mean, you'll get a promotion, you'll get an inheritance, like the blessings just keep on coming, and you know what the world wants? Get a bigger bowl. We gotta fit it all. This is what the world wants. And I told my boys, as you think about all the things and the stuff and the, the what God has provided you over the last week, I said, Christians are supposed to be a pipe, not a pail. God provides to us, and a lot of it stays with us, and the rest flows out. And in a perfect world, this wouldn't be a bowl, it'd be another pipe. And it would just keep going and going and going and going. We're not supposed to be this. We're supposed to be this. And there's no reason to get a bigger one. As God's blessings flow through us and through the community, this is how things were designed to be. So I challenged my kids. And my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my seven-year-old, best I could, and I said, I want you to walk around the house, and I want you to pray, and I want you to ask God the question, where are you gonna be a pipe and not a pail? What does that look like? And so I sent them off. And before anyone thinks that my children are spiritual giants, some 60 seconds later, one of my children, who I will not name, comes back. He's like, Dad, I found a toy I'd like to give away. I looked at him, isn't that your brother's toy? <laughs> it is so... So sneaky, the love of money and the love of stuff. And the antidote to a love of money is generosity. It just is. Now Ananias and Sapphira, problem didn't stop there because honestly, they could have just, they just could have been honest. Peter pointed this out. In fact, when she came, he gave her the chance to tell the truth. They could have kept the money that, that was theirs or just be honest about it. So the second thing I want to point out, what we see is, is what I'm going to call the fear of man. And I don't mean like being actually afraid of a person. What I mean is caring more about what people think than about what God thinks. Because Ananias and Sapphira wanted the honor. They got their reputation boost. Even though this kind of generosity was purely voluntary as other people were doing it, I'm sure they just wanted their names out there. Hey, they sold a property and gave it to the church too. They wanted to look the part. Jesus has something to say 
to people who spend more of their energy on how others see them than on what's going on inside their hearts. In Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You were like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, Ananias and Sapphira wanted the status without the sacrifice. They wanted status without sacrifice. And this is at odds with the gospel. It is antithetical to what we get in the life of Jesus because Jesus, God become flesh, gave up status. He gave up heaven to come down and to live amongst all the limitations of humanity. And among them living the perfect life that we could not, dying the death that we deserved. He gave up that status. He endured that, the, the, the guilt and the shame that we were supposed to bear. And then after giving up that status, he sacrificed everything. And here you have two people at the very birth of the church. While Jesus gave up status in order to make sacrifice, they don't want to make sacrifice, but they want the status. It stands completely at odds with the beauty and the power of the gospel message. And God wasn't gonna have it. Brings us to my second and final point. I mentioned this earlier. God is passionate for the purity of his people. God is passionate for the the holiness of his people. God wants his people's best and he wants his people to love and live and look like Jesus according to the, the beautiful design that he has for them. And the church is something that is sacred to God. Now, in the Old Testament, we actually have a history of sacred things being profaned and people facing the death penalty because of it. In 2 Samuel 6, someone stuck their hand out who was not supposed to be touching the Ark of the Covenant, stuck his hand out to steady it, and he was struck down. In number 16, Korah and a bunch of people revolted, rebelled against Moses and his leadership. They were destroyed, swallowed up in the earth. In Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons were offering things to God that they were not commanded nor authorized to, and they were struck down. And in each of these situations, you have, you have something that is sacred to God that is being treated with carelessness, negligence, or even maliciousness, and God isn't going to have it. But for, for you and me, if you've grown up in a secular world, the idea of sacred becomes so distant or foreign to us. The idea that something can be sacred. That's just a hard concept for us to grapple with. So I've got kind of an illustration I'd like you to think about with me. I have, I, I have four kids, one on the way. My youngest, my fourth, her, her name is Addie. She's going to be two this year. And next is a little girl as well. And so I was thinking for this. I was thinking... 
You know, let's say my daughter gets to be at the age in which I'm, I'm going to take her to a daddy-daughter dance, okay? And there's a number in our area. We have a bunch of people from the church who do this. But let's say I buy her a really beautiful dress, and, and she gets all dressed up, and, and we, we, we go to this function together. And at some point, someone who doesn't like her, some bully, whatever it is, takes a Sharpie and just makes a mark on the dress. Now, in that moment, what you have is an act that takes something beautiful that I purchased for my daughter, and it adds blemish to it. On the other hand, you're taking and attacking someone who to me is sacred. And I would be perfectly justified to be angry at what happened. Perfectly justified. And throughout scripture, humanity takes things that are sacred to God. And whether it's by carelessness, whether it's by negligence, or whether it's by maliciousness, we mark it up. And sometimes God shows us what the actual consequence deserved for that actually are. And people are struck down. Not always, but sometimes. But if I deserve in a situation like that to be angry, how much more so does a perfect and eternal and holy God deserve to be angry when the things he calls sacred and set apart are treated in such a manner? In Ephesians chapter five, God says this about his church. He's passionate about the purity of his people. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. This is not talking about you and me now. This is talking about the process because we're not perfect. We're not, we're not perfectly blameless. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is blameless. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, for those who entrust themselves to God, Holy Spirit works on us along the way. But you read something like this, and you even think about Ananias and Sapphira in the story, and you may ask the question, well, what does this mean for the church today? Who fits? What kind of person what kind of person fits in this group of people we call the church? And I'm gonna close with two passages. And first John gives us some insight into this because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all flawed. Where does sin and mistakes and failure fit into this beautiful thing God is trying to build? Where does it fit? Well, in 1 John 3, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's so strong, it's so harsh. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I really love the ESV's translation here where it says makes a practice of sinning because it's talking about ongoing patterns of unrepentant, unconfessed sin. That's what it's talking about. 
For the person who lives in ongoing patterns of unrepented, unconfessed sin, if that's you, according to John, you of the devil, you're not born of God. There's no room for that in the church. However, before we get too confident in ourselves, 1 John 1, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ushers, you guys can come forward and begin to distribute communion. Back to the question, where does sin and sinners fit in this beautiful thing, this thing that was so sacred to God that the first people that, that infected it, he wiped them out. Where does our sin fit? Where do sinners supposed to fit? And the reason we went to these passages in John is because there are two sides of the coin that God does not want for his church. On this side is the person who says that they love Jesus, but who continues in patterns of sin and has no problem with it. They're fine. They want to sit in it and they're good, which is kind of like a person who leaves their spouse and their kids every night to go look for a prostitute. When they're, when they're confronted by it, they're like, yeah, so? There's no room for that in the church. But on the other side, there's also no room for the people who again, say they love Jesus, put on a total fake mask of how great they are and rot on the inside. There's no place for that. So who's left? We will never, never run out of room. The church will always have space for broken, sinful people who know they're broken, who know they're sinful, and who desperately seek Jesus. No mask no pretending, no nominalism, no looking better than you actually are. People who know they're not okay, but who aren't okay staying that way, who bind together in this community known as the church to raise each other up, to encourage one another when we're hurting, to bear our burdens, when someone falls and when someone messes up and there's confession, there's a reminder, a loving and gracious reminder of God's goodness in their life so they might be restored. That's who we wanna be. And once a month, we take communion together as a church. And this is for those who, who, who know and have trusted their lives to Jesus. But once a month, we do communion as a group of flawed, failed people, as a group of broken people in desperate need of a savior. And we're not here to pretend like we have it all together because Jesus did. We're not here to pretend like we're perfect because Jesus was perfect. And part of the healing process is being willing to say, this is what I'm working on and lay it before him. The point of communion is to remember, is to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on that cross despite his perfection and because of our imperfection. No pretending here.
So we're gonna take a few moments. And if there's something that has gone unconfessed in your life, now is the time between you and God to confess it. If there's been some new sin that's worked its way, addiction, it's gotten its grips on you and you haven't even gone to God with it, now is the time to confess. You've been wrestling with, with greed, with envy, with lust, with impatience. Now is the time. Go to God, confess it. John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Not just to forgive, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because God is passionate about the purity of his people. So take a moment, pray, and we'll be back in a little while. Writes in his letter to Corinth, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Don't, I'm gonna pray, don't take it, do this in remembrance of me, Lord. Again, for those in this room who are dealing with the fogginess of this world, distractions, Holy Spirit, we pray you pierce through that. That in this moment, we can give singular thanks for the greatest act of love in human history, in your history, when you gave yourself on the cross. May we not take it lightly. May we not take it for granted. And Lord, as a messed up people in need of a good and loving God, we do this in remembrance of you. Take the bread with me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we do declare that your blood covers a multitude of sins and that every day your mercies are so new and beautiful. Lord, we give you thanks for the forgiveness that we don't deserve, for the bloodshed. We love you. We take this in remembrance of you. Take the cup. 